Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome as our guest to, of this podcast to Christina Economos, New Balance Chair in Childhood, Nutri Childhood Nutrition and Associate Professor at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University. Christina is one of the leading experts in the world on community interventions to deal with diet, physical activity, and obesity prevention. Uh, a hero in my mind because of um, her, her advanced thinking and creativity and in intervening in the community and willing to take chances doing the types of programs that people simply haven't done before. So I'm delighted to welcome you, Christina. Thank you, Kelly. So we're going to do two podcasts, one discussing community factors that affect diet and obesity, and then the second podcast will be on the program that you have engineered called Shape Up Somerville, which is known around the world for being perhaps the most creative and ingenious program that's been done. So let's first talk about community factors that affect diet and physical activity. So what have you learned uh, from your work in Somerville, Massachusetts, and other communities about the factors, day-to-day -day factors that people are exposed to that affect their, their food habits and their physical activity? Well, from the moment someone wakes up until they go to sleep, they're exposed to a lot of different environments. And we've learned that you need to break down and understand each environment and make changes within each one in order to realize a biologic change. So for example, with children, they wake in the morning and they may go to a before school program, then they're in school, they may go to an after school program, then they go to a community center, and then they go home. And so just making a change in one of those environments will not lead to long-term change or even significant change short-term. And so we're trying to create healthy environments throughout an entire community. So we've really uh, managed to form partnerships and increase the availability of healthy foods and access to physical activity throughout an entire day. And right. it's no small task. So let's talk about some of these, what some of these factors are before we get into the program itself. So talk about physical activity for a moment. Um, you know, I, it's, I think it's most common for, for people to think that the children are less active now than, they, than we were when we were children, which is almost inevitably true. What are some of the factors that conspire to make that the case? Well, clearly during the school day, uh, physical education programs and recess have been cut. In addition to that, the way that children get to school has changed a lot. Back in the 1960s, more than half of children walked to school. Now about 5 to 10% walk to school. And although that may not seem like a lot, we're losing that opportunity of 50 to 100 calories to expend. Uh, in addition to that, a lot of urban settings are really lacking good recreational programs. They may be accessible to children who are athletic, and even after the age of 9 or 10, children who aren't necessarily athletes are quite marginalized. So we need better holistic uh, recreational programs that invite all children to participate. And that's funding. It's really driven by a lack of funding. And you've talked about the built environment. And that's, it's a term that gets used in professional circles, but not one that everybody may understand. Can you explain the concept and how it plays out into the day-to-day -day life of a child, let's say? Sure. It's really the way we build our physical environment that we live in, houses, sidewalks, 
um, how far away we are from things we need to access on a daily basis. So old uh, New England towns were really laid out so that people could walk everywhere. And we've really engineered suburbs now so that you can't walk. You have to get in a car to get out of that cul-de-sac that you live on. So trying to revitalize walkability and bikeability within communities is really, in some ways, uh, re-engineering the way we're laying out our communities, providing bike paths and sidewalks, extending um, the size of the road so that it can accommodate a bike lane. And there's a lot of investment nationwide going into that so that we can use our bodies to transport us to places we need to go. Can you explain what a day in the life of a modern child is pertaining to food? Mm. That, that's a great question. I actually chronicled a day in the life of one of my children and realized at the end of the day, if I hadn't said no several times, they would have consumed an additional 500 calories above and beyond their needs for growth and development. And that's a remarkable amount added up day after day. It would have been 11 pounds over the course of the year. <laughs> in just one year. I did that calculation. Children are bombarded with messaging about food, with unhealthy food, and they're driven everywhere. And so even if they're involved in a competitive sport, they may only be active for 15 or 20 minutes during that hour that they're out there. So a lot of parents are falsely believing that if their children are in a sport, they then need to give them some sort of energy source in a liquid or a solid form to uh, reload them with calories. So, you know, a typical child um, maybe gets up in the morning, has uh, a poor breakfast, uh, gets driven to school, sits for most of the day, uh, may get uh, 10 to 15 minutes for lunch, so they can't possibly, you know, consume a healthy lunch and socialize in that time period. If it's school lunch, in many schools there's a still tremendous room for improvement. Um, and then after school, they may go to an after school program that uh, possibly is understaffed. There's nowhere for them to play, so they're forced to help the kids with homework because there's a lot of homework and achievement scores need to say hi, and parents are demanding that. So by the time they get out of there, they've had another snack, haven't been on any physical activity, and then you know they're being shuttled home and then watch an hour or two of TV and go to sleep. So you talked um, about the exposure to food that may not be the best, like in schools, for example. Um, and I know you've also thought about and written about the marketing messages that just bombard kids. So you think about that the first meal of the day at breakfast with all the marketing that's on the box of cereal, um, the, the billboards they may drive past on the way to school, the, the big symbol from the soft drink company on the machine that's in the school that just goes on and on, doesn't it? Absolutely. From a very early age, as you know, brand loyalty is a goal. So kids are exposed to uh, messaging and brands and logos and characters. So they become attached to them at an early age. And if you continue to put those characters on products that are appealing as they age, they'll continue to buy those products. So you painted a picture of the day-to-day -day environment of the typical child as being pretty risky, dangerous, toxic even, on both the physical activity front and on the food front. And when you put those two together, it's a pretty bad combination. Absolutely. So it's not surprising, given your observations, that we have record levels of obesity in children. Just how bad is that problem? Well, nationwide, about one-third of children weigh too much, according to the standards that we've set. 
but there's a lot of variability there. So when we look at higher income privileged communities, it's more like 15%. And if we go into disadvantage, it's as high as 50%. So children who are often uh, relying on uh, federal assistance and school breakfast and school lunch are often getting uh, the worst food possible, which is exacerbating the obesity rates. So we need to take control as a nation of what's going on with children and give all children the same opportunity to thrive physically, emotionally, academically, and we're not doing the best job. For those, for populations, well, for any child that's overweight, and it's alarming that 50% of some populations fall into that category, what's the health trajectory of those kids? Mm -hmm. I mean, most of those kids will remain overweight as they get older, um, particularly if they present with at least one overweight parent, the likelihood of them remaining overweight is 70 to 80 percent. And what will start to happen during the uh, prepubescent or adolescent years is uh, uh, different um, disease risks will start to occur, high cholesterol, perhaps hypertension. For the very unfortunate, type 2 diabetes may manifest. And they'll start to opt out of physical activity, so they may end up with um, you know, joint soreness, which then gets worse the less active you are. And for young girls who eventually may choose to have a baby, they're at high risk for gestational diabetes and high birth weight babies, and it goes on and on. So unfortunately, you know, what we're seeing in terms of chronic disease risk and even chronic disease in childhood is overwhelming compared to a few decades ago. So you made a very compelling case for the need to intervene, and I think the most creative interventions are some of the things you're doing, and we'll get to that in the second of the two podcasts. One uh, thing that I've heard you discuss that I find absolutely fascinating and not something I've heard discussed very much uh, are the health, um, the health um, conditions and especially pertaining to body weight of immigrants. Mm -hmm. And I know you're doing some intervention work on that, but what, what have you noticed about weights in that group? Mm. So I'm working with new immigrants defined as people who've been in the country less than five years. And you can imagine how difficult it is upon arrival, you're seeking employment and housing, um, a good situation for your child to become educated. You may not speak the language. Um, it, it's very, very challenging in the isolation and the emotional uh, consequences that come with arriving here and trying to make it are, are just overwhelming for some people. And what people uh, tend to do is uh, buy the least expensive, most convenient food. And as we know, there's a lot of it available in this country, and people who consume food out from home and fast food consume more calories on average than not. And if you're then put into a situation where you're sedentary most of the time and you're not walking a mile to catch a bus like you were at home, you're walking a block to catch a bus because buses stop here all the time. You're expending a lot less activity just in that case. You're watching a lot more media here as well. And what the national data show is that people gain a tremendous amount of weight within seven years of arrival here, stories of up to 50 pounds. And what we know from any adult population is once you gain weight, it's very, very difficult to lose it. And about 5% of people are successful in losing it and maintaining that loss. So now we're seeing people arrive in this obesogenic environment, trying to navigate their way around, end up over-consuming and under-expending, overweight, and not changing. And I'm assuming that the uh, risk is elevated in, in their children as well? Absolutely. From preliminary data that we've collected, we've seen that. And so what we're trying to do through a new intervention is 
understand what their life is like and develop appropriate intervention strategies to help them navigate this landscape. They don't want to gain weight and they want to be healthy and they come here to have a better life. How can we let them come here and end up sick? One more uh, quick question before we end this podcast. You've made some observations about what happens to weight during uh, the summer for mm-hmm. children. What, what have you found with that? Well, we have some preliminary data that really supports some data that have been published over the last couple of years indicating that children are gaining more weight than we'd expect during the summer period. Um, so intuitively, you expect them to lose weight because they'd be out of school moving around and playing. And, being and historic data showed that, that they were gaining less in the summer than in the winter. And we're seeing this all around the U.S., regardless of climate. And I think it's got to do with what children are doing in the summer, not that it's hot or it's, or it's cold during the summer months. And a lot of children, uh, you know, during the summertime are forced to stay inside because the parents may not have a good quality childcare option that they can afford. And so to keep them safe when they go to work, perhaps they're keeping them at home with a friend, a sibling, a grandparent, and keeping them safe by not letting them go outside. And, you know, the most attractive um, thing to do is to watch television when you're sitting inside your house, especially if you're in an apartment building. And that affects both food intake and physical activity. Well, you know what they'll be exposed to if they're watching television. You know, majority of the ads will be for unhealthy food. And so that's going to prompt the purchase and the consumption of that food. Great. Well, thank you very much. Our guest uh, for this first of two podcasts is Christina Economost, New Balance Chair in Childhood Nutrition at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University and pioneer of the Shape Up Somerville program, which is what we'll talk about in the second podcast. Thank you very much, Christina. Thank you.